The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, Olivia here, and welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world, and with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. And today I'm thrilled to have as my guest, Charles Eisenstein. We'll be discussing sacred economics. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Charles. He is a speaker and writer focusing on themes of human culture and identity. He is the author of several books, most recently Sacred Economics and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. His background includes a degree in mathematics and philosophy from Yale. He spent a decade in Taiwan as a translator and stints as a college professor or instructor, a yoga teacher, and construction worker. And he currently writes and speaks full-time and lives in Pennsylvania with his wife and four children. Charles, welcome to Quantum Business Insights. Uh, thank you, Olivia. So, I am a businesswoman and a spiritual seeker, which sometimes can seem contradictory, but I believe there's a lot of overlap there. And I'd love to see a world where businesses operate for the good of the whole, the stockholders, the employees, the community, and the planet. And that's why I love this idea of sacred economics. So how do you define sacred economics and how does it work? Yeah, well, the concept came out of the observation that uh, probably most people have at one point or another that money is often not aligned with the thing that you really care about uh, or the, the most beautiful way that you can do something. Like, why is it that, that it so often seems that to save money or to make a profit, you have to kind of cut corners, you have to kind of do stuff that's distasteful or that doesn't contribute to your vision of what the world could be? Uh, you know, why, why is money so often misaligned? Why is it... Uh, profitable, for example, to cut down forests and dig strip mines and not profitable to protect forests and reclaim wetlands, you know, like wh what is right. it, you know, about money that makes it that way? Is it that money itself is just evil or mm -hmm. is there some way that we could change money and change our economic behavior so that this contradiction would go away? Um, that, so that's what sacred economics is to me. It, it would be a system in which the entrepreneurial spirit 
uh, and all of the uh, dynamism in business contributes to the well-being of all. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's beautiful. Um, one of the things I love in, your, in the concept is the principle of the gift. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about that? Yeah. You know, I was thinking uh, just now this, uh, of a quote from the, the uh, chief executive of General Motors. And this was back in the 60s, I think, or maybe early 70s. And he said, the business of GM is not to make cars. The business is to make money. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's wrong, actually. Um, when, when people go into business, I mean, sure, like we go into business to make money, but there's something else there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a gift that that business uh, seeks to give to society. Uh, and you can recognize when a business is doing that, you know, like because it makes its products a little better than they have to be. You know, I get that feeling with Apple sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, like somebody really loved this this idea, you know, and executed. Or sometimes with um, with certain cars, uh, sports cars. You know, that like yeah, I mean, you have to make them perform well for the market. But it seems like there was, you know, an engineer who really loved this thing. And I mm-hmm. think that um, the so the principle of the gift is uh, where what I call sacred economics really comes from. It it comes from the understanding that my reason for being here on earth is not as the economists have said, to maximize my self-interest. But my purpose here is that I have something to give. Business can then be seen as a a vehicle for bringing something into existence that serves society. And in a system that works well, uh, that gift that you give to society will draw return gifts. You know, you'll, you'll be taken care of too. You'll be rewarded as well, but you're not doing it primarily to get the reward. You're doing it because you really want to create a restaurant. You know, you really have a great idea and you're excited about that and you're going to make cool stuff. You know, that's, that's the motivation. And I think that in most people who go into business, at least um, small business, you know, there's something of that there. There's some passion there mm. underneath. Mm. I think you're. I think you're right. And there's this saying. I can't remember who said it, but there may even be a book. Do what you love, and the money will follow. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. A lot of people who start a small business, it's because of something they are passionate about, and then. As it gets bigger and they want to make it scalable or they have to turn it over to people to keep it growing, then a lot of times it loses that, um, you know, that focus or that maybe balance of giving and receiving. I'm curious, too, about your quote from GE where maybe it was Jack Welch or whoever was the CEO. I think it was before that era. Oh, okay. Yes. Said we're in business to make money, and I would I would love to have a follow up question, which is, why do you want to make money? You know, because I think that's the underlying thing. Is it for control or to do good or because I need to get it from away from other people to be safe? You know, there's just so many things that I think people don't understand, and um, I'd really well. I wanted to ask you in one of your blog posts, you talk about human beings don't 
really want to work or that's the assumption in the mainstream. So right. we have to be incentivized by money. Um, what do you think's wrong with that theory? Well, I mean, that theory uh, was pretty uh, attractive during the Industrial Revolution mm. when most work was was degrading and, and dangerous and, and laborious. And not only uh, factory work, but even if you were, you know, a, cl- a clerk of some sort, uh, a scrivener, you know, mm. uh, copying documents or adding up lines of figures, you know, like work really sucked in those <laughs> days. Uh, so, and this was a, a problem for industry, you know, how do you get people to do uh, things that no sane human being would want to do? <laughs> yeah. You know, for the sake of an external reward. Well, one way is to make them so desperate that they, you know, have no choice. Mm. Uh, another way would be to send them to school and educate them in a way that conditions them to think that, that that's very much a product of, uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution. Uh, because if you, um, you know, you can try it. Like, I don't know how many of the listeners have had this experience in life of having uh, all of your needs taken care of and you are, f- mm. you are totally free to sit on a beach in, in Thailand. I mean, I met guys like this, you know, when I was traveling. Like, it seems like paradise. Yeah, I'm just going to sit on the beach in Thailand. I've got, it's really cheap. It's $5 a night to stay in this bungalow on the beach, you know, and I can have fresh pineapples brought to my window every morning and mm-hmm. just going to, you know sit on the beach and get high every day, you know, like, it seems like paradise. But after a week or two, almost everybody gets so fed up with it because we have an inborn desire to give of our gifts. And that's what work is supposed to be. You know, it's supposed to be the expression of our gifts in service to the world. And, and, and I think that that, like, yeah, you try, you, you try it. You, you make a fortune, you retire early, you know, and you play tennis and golf. Like, how long does that satisfy you? Mm. Not very long. Or if you have any job that doesn't allow you to express your gifts, you know, that, that job is not satisfying. So I think that, that you know, we, we have a fundamental misunderstanding of what a human being is and why we're here and what our motivations are. Uh, we're not just here to maximize our reproductive self-interest and our survival self-interest you know we're we're here to contribute to something we can all feel that inside of ourselves yeah Yeah. it may explain why there's such an overuse of antidepressants because i think people are are so unhappy in in their jobs and you know you were talking about the industrial revolution and when jobs were really difficult and i it may be a whole other conversation, but I wonder if our brains were different back then because now with all the technology and connectivity, I think we're even waking up to to more desire to connect. So I see people in the technology field and people who have fairly stimulating jobs and maybe even mentally challenging, but mm-hmm. it's still not enough that they want, like you say, to bring a gift forward and... Um, I really like that that concept. Yeah, yeah stimulating and challenging. Um, I mean, that's important, but it's not enough. Right. You, know, you have to also like really care about what you're creating in your work. 
Yeah, that makes total sense. And sort of one of the reasons I do this radio show, because it's, I feel like this is where I get to give back, um, even though I make an income doing data analysis. So, it, mm-hmm. it completely makes sense. Um, so, I wanted to ask about some of the history of money, because I think that helps people understand where we got where we were. And some people may know this, but I think it's worth repeating. Like, why did it work many years ago? And why has the money system we currently have sort of stopped working? Yeah. Um, Basically, our money system works pretty well in the context of rapid growth. Mm. uh, Because it allows... Um, you know, our, our, our money money is created through uh, lending, you know, through through credit, through interest-bearing debt. Mm. Uh, so if there's rapid growth, there's lots of opportunities to lend. You know, you, the banks lend to people who create jobs, you know, and, and there are more and more jobs producing more and more stuff. That's only possible if there's more and more consumption, more and more demand. Uh, so in the uh, era of rapid growth, when we were, you know, when... At the beginning, no household had a washing machine, an air conditioner, a car, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there was, there was uh, room for this growth to happen um, and, I, and work to be done. Can I ask, too, that it, yeah. does it assume unlimited resources to some extent? Well, yeah. I mean, right now, we're, we're running up against the limits of growth on many fronts. Mm. Uh, one of them is certainly ecological. You know, we just can't keep increasing the amount of, of of minerals and petroleum and things that we take from from the planet, and we can't keep increasing the amount of waste we dump into the atmosphere. Uh, and that's one limit of growth. And then another one um, is kind of the social limit of growth. You know, I just read that uh, the United States hasn't built any new airports for 20 years, hmm. uh, and airports are a tremendous driver of growth. You know, but is like, do we need more airports? You know, is that what we need the most right now in society is more airports? No. <laughs> right. We're, we're pretty saturated with airports, you know. And, and this is, we're also saturated with television sets and washing machines and a lot of these things that drove growth for a long time. And so I'm not going to try to summarize the whole argument, but when we uh, reach the end of growth, our money system stops working very well. Mm. And, in, in, and, in, and we get... Uh, increasing indebtedness, increasing inequality, concentration of wealth, um, and uh, breakdown, systemic breakdown, uh, which is, can be, the politicians understand that if you could get rapid growth again, you could solve these problems. But that solution is really no longer available to us. And it is forcing us to, sooner or later, uh, come to deeper kinds of solutions that I think involve changing the way that money is created and circulates. So that does make a lot of sense, and I guess um, interest, it, it's almost like the money supply just has to continue to get bigger in order for this to be sustainable. Is that accurate? Yeah, basically, you know, um, if you owe me money, uh, and, and I want to keep, you know, I want to keep expand, like, you know, suppose I'm, I'm, I have a lot of money and I want my money, money to grow with interest. Okay? Mm. I want to, you know, increase my nest egg. Well, where is that extra money going to come from? Uh, 
it's either going to come from the growth of the economy so that uh, you who are paying me this money through uh, my investments are because your income is growing that you're, 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 you're able to make these payments and do okay yourself. Either that's happening or if the economy outside isn't growing, uh, then uh, I'm going to have to take a larger and larger share of a pie that's not growing. You understand? Which means it's coming away from someone else, basically. That's right. Right. So yes. that creates the idea of scarcity, which... Yes. <laughs> Right. Which isn't There's, a comfortable thing for people, right? Right, yeah. Um, and, and unless you have very fast growth, scarcity and anxiety and uh, desperate competition is basically built into the system. And I think we're just seeing so much of that um, with things like people getting upset with politicians or, or well, like the the 99% movement that um, kind of speaks to this because I guess the, the long-term downside is very, a big imbalance of wealth, right? A, a, the, the, we know that the 1% holds what, like 60% of the wealth in the world or something like that. Yep. So um, I can't even, I can't even imagine how that is long-term has any long-term sustainability. Well, we're, we're just about up to a break. I think this is a good time because I want to come back and get into some other stuff that I'd love to have an uninterrupted time. So just let me reintroduce my guest today is Charles Eisenstein. And you can read more about what he's writing and get access to his wonderful books um, at charleseisenstein.net. And that's C-H-A-R-L-E-S. E-I-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N dot net. And we'll be back in a few minutes. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. Our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be? Or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back 
to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here, and I'm back with my guest, Charles Eisenstein, uh, author of a book, Sacred Economics, and another book that I really recommend, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. So before the break, we talked a bit about incentives for work and why our current money supply and our money system is basically not sustainable. So I'd love to explore maybe what do you see as some alternatives to money? Yeah, I'm not really talking about alternatives to money. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, like on the one hand, I think that most of us would be happier um, if the non-monetary realm could expand, if we could reclaim some of the life functions that we use money for uh, and reclaim them for community, you know, reclaim them for family. I think people are happier when, when their hands are in the soil, planting and growing some of their own food. I think people are happier when they're cooking for themselves and their loved ones rather than getting the food at the supermarket deli. You know, I think uh, it adds something to life when you play an instrument and you sing songs together mm. instead of downloading all your music. Uh, and, and these are all, we're especially taking care of children. I, 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 a friend of mine um, was a, a very successful real estate developer and during the go-go days of the you know, mid-2000s, uh, he was making a fortune and, and operating several companies and, and he said that he had a gardener, uh, a nanny for his kids, mm. a cook, you know, a, a driver. And, and he said basically he'd outsourced everything he loved about his life. Wow. And, and that's kind of, you know, we're all in a, in a highly monetized economy. We're all a little bit in that boat, I think. We don't even necessarily know what we've lost. Mm-hmm. When when we're missing, you know, the neighborhood baseball game, you know, the the small town marching band. I mean, every a hundred years ago, every small town had its own baseball team that people were really into, and their own marching band. And there was kind of a civic life that was co-created, not purchased. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're, we're missing a lot of this. And so I am talking in part about reclaiming some of life from the money money realm, but I'm not one of the people who say, oh, we're going to abolish money. Because uh, I think that, you know, on a, on a global scale with a global division of labor um, and, and technology, we need to coordinate human activity um, across vast social distances. You know, we need, so I'm not going to defend money uh, right mm-hmm. here, but, but what I'll say is that I'm also talking about how to change money uh, so that it doesn't have some of the noxious effects that money today has. Well, so a lot of the ways that we've changed, I think, has been driven by the media with maybe underlying corporate greed as a fuel to Mm -hmm. stimulate us to go out to eat more or get over maybe also the fact that the money supply... The, or the way the money supply works is having people work longer hours and so they don't have time to do a lot of these things that used to feed our soul. Um, yeah. 
I don't know what we can do about that, but it, do you think it will just have to be like a, a revolution of the people to sort of take take it back from from the corporations? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I don't like. Sure, corporations behave uh, in greedy ways, but I don't think that their greed is the fundamental problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that that if we you know took out the current occupants of corporate offices and put new ones in who are less greedy that anything would change. I think greed is actually kind of built into the job description. It's built into the nature of the corporation. Mm. Uh, and, and so there are people who talk about changing corporate charters, you know, and, and maybe even uh, revoking corporate charters and changing. But, but corporations actually rest on something even deeper. Um, they're simply the most uh, or one of the most efficient ways to um, maximize return on capital, basically. Oh. Uh, and a positive return on capital is essential to for credit to flow in our system. Mm. Uh, so anyway, I think that one of the pitfalls or one of the um, like kind of a clever diversion from addressing the real problem is to divert our indignation onto greed and think that greed is the problem. Greed is a symptom, even on a personal level. You know, what, what, what is greed? Greed is when you want more than you really need. Okay. Goes like, back to scarcity, perhaps. Yeah. Like, why would somebody want a third, a fourth, a fifth BMW, you know? Why would somebody want a 10,000-square-foot house? Why would somebody want mm. all of the things that you can buy with money and, and, and a second million, third million, 50 millionth, you know, dollar in your bank account? Why? When it, when it doesn't really help you, doesn't really make you happy. I mean, this is a cliche almost, you know, it doesn't make you happy. Why would you want it then? I think it's uh, a substitute for the things that people really want. What people really want is, is connections. They want intimacy. They want uh, a sense of exploring their boundaries, you know. Um, they want to, to grow as a person. They want to do something meaningful and fulfilling. Like these are needs that are are tragically unmet in our society, and so instead, you can have a sports car. You know, instead you can have uh, premier gold status on your airline or something like that. But those aren't what we really want. It, in a sense, we're we're addicted to those things. So underneath greed is um, a loss, you know, a wound. Mm. But then we go to, so greed is a symptom of, of living cut off from connections to nature and community. And then we go to war against the symptom. But that doesn't really change anything on a deep level. So yeah. I, mean, I haven't gotten specific, actually. You did kind of ask me, um, and if you want, I can go into it more about, about you know, how exactly to change the money system. Um, yeah, I would like that. And I just was reading something the other day, and I don't remember the name of the fellow, but it was a great article about a guy who had reached, fairly young, had sold a technology company for hundreds of millions of dollars and went over to Southeast Asia to work with children that were living on the street. And I thought, he got it, right? He figured out that having all the money in the world does not the soul so um, so yeah I'd love you to, to dive deeper into that yeah 
Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a personal dimension to it. You know, um, you can make an individual choice to reorient your life toward what you want to give rather than to how much to take, how much can I take and how secure can I be? I mean, no amount of money will make you secure. You know, no amount of money will insulate you against all the bad things that can happen in your life. Uh, but on a systems level, I think that we're, uh, we need to make a change as well. I mean, we don't have to have a world where our most noble impulses always have to fight against security and economic interest. Right. Uh, so, um, and let me say, like, I think that the way that, that, that big changes will happen is through the breakdown of the system that we live in. Uh, it could happen when people are just so fed up with living their lives as debt slaves. I mean, I just got a letter from a, from a, from, you know, a recent university graduate, you know, and like she and her fiance are orienting their whole life around how do we keep making our student loan payments? Yeah. And, and they're going to be making those payments for 20 years, you know, like bye-bye youth, you know, bye-bye right. exploration, you know, I've got to, you know, embark on the grim repayment of my loans. Like people are, are, are getting, I think we'll get fed up with that um, because it's not going away. You know, the indebtedness is only rising. And yeah, and it's one thing excluded from bankruptcy, by the way. So yeah, the student debt's excluded from bankruptcy, but but yeah, but more than just student debt. I mean, like just society in general is right. is groaning under an increasing debt burden. And I think that one way that big change can happen, and that the people can exercise their power, is through um, debt resistance. At some point, a debt strike, something like that, that could really bring fast changes. And and I think. You know, because there's going to be another financial crisis. There's going to be the need. I mean, nothing really changed fundamentally after 2008. Right. Um, so what happens when there's the next round of, of um, bankruptcies and, and a liquidity freeze and all of the things that happened in 2008? You know, there's going to be another, an, another bailout. There'll have to be another bailout in order to save the system because at stake is also, you know, grandma's savings, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, I think that that is the moment where a um, really important uh, systemic change could could be made. The the solution I talk about, or is not the solution, but one of the solutions I I write about, um, is to have a liquidity fee on bank reserves, mm. which essentially means negative interest on accumulated wealth. Or you could also say a wealth tax, right. uh, which is different from an income tax. Yeah, uh, you know, it 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 only penalizes accumulations of wealth, and says if you're not going to use it in a, a productive way, if you're just going to keep it and hold it, it's going to decline in value. Um, so that just makes so much sense. Where where do you see? Is the resistance to doing that? Well, I mean, fundamentally, it uh, is in the interest of debtors to have a system like that and against the interest of creditors because it would allow debtors to refinance their loans at zero interest, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the banks would suffer, basically, oh, in one way. 
Um, I mean, the banks maybe, I mean, the banks would suffer as holders of wealth, yes, but not as financial intermediaries. I mean, they would still be able to do their business. Mm, okay. They'd yeah. have a, a new role, basically, or, or expanded would, of that part. Of yeah, that. or maybe even a return to the role that they're supposed to have. <laughs> right. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, which, which really is, is to say, I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, what a bank is, you know, I'm supposed to I'm here to say I'm a wealthy person and I, I go to the bank and I say, I've got all this money, you know, I'm not using it. Can you find somebody who can use it mm. while I don't need it? You know, while I'm not using it, someone else could use it. And the, the bank is supposed to be someone who finds that for you. Uh, now, today, of course, you only do that if you're going to get even more money back. Right. Right. So you're not actually giving the use of your money to other people. You're renting the use of your money <laughs> to other people. But the, the systems tweak I'm talking about would change that. Uh, and you would, because if you keep your money, it would decline in value at, say, 5% a year. So you'd be happy to let somebody else use it uh, at 0%. So then when you get it back, it hasn't lost all that value. And then that's just a very kind of basic explanation of one piece of what I call sacred economics. Um, and I don't know, the li- those of the listeners who are, um, you know, who have studied economics might have all kinds of questions. I mean, it really takes a whole, I mean, a whole chapter long chapter in a book to lay out the the idea in a way that doesn't seem half-baked, you know, or doesn't seem like I've overlooked some trivial objection. Uh, but it's it's been around for, geez, 70 or 80 years now, this idea. Yeah, and one of the things you write a lot about in a, a healthy money system would be that the gift economy and the idea of connection. And I even think this, when you can be more connected with people, like there are still some communities where they might give someone money and maybe expect to get it back later, but it wouldn't be worth as much, but wouldn't even dream of charging interest, you know. And I think that was more common when people were, connected and had more trust in each other and today we're just so isolated or can be so isolated because of the amazing entertainment we can get in in the privacy of our own home and you know maybe by ourselves and so we sort of have lost the ability to trust people out there do you think that that's a piece of it and and maybe talk about the concept of the gift economy and how that might fuel this new way of working with money well well, one reason that people used to trust each other more is that in your community you keep you you every day you see people helping each other Uh, those who have the ability to help others do it and and you know then that if you help others that when you are in need then those who have helped will come and help you too you know that because you see it every day. You see that the most generous people are themselves uh, taken care of when they when they have a need. Uh, that that's that's how community works. Community is a group of people who can look at each other and say, "Yeah, I need you for my life. Mm. Uh, your your well being will contribute to my well being." Because you'll have more to give. Your good fortune is my good fortune too. And your misfortune, that's my misfortune too. Because 
you know, you break your leg or something, and now I need to take care of you, and you can't contribute as much anymore. That's what community is, which yeah. is kind of the opposite of what we have in a, in a competitive uh, economy where, you know, your misfortune, that's my good fortune because now you're not going to get the job, and I am. Right. Now, now you're going to um, be un- unable to pay your debt, and there'll be more money for me to pay my debt. You know, that we're, we're kind of set into competition by our money system. And, and, and we, you know, you look out, I mean, I'm looking out my window right now, you know, I, I'm in a kind of a semi-suburban neighborhood. Like, I don't know these people that well, you know, and if something happens to John across the street there, it's not going to affect me. Mm. You know, his, whatever his job is, you know, someone else could do that job. It doesn't matter. And, and I think this is one of the, the deepest missing needs, you know, d- d- deepest unfulfilled needs that we have. Everywhere I go, people, when they say, what do you want more of in your life? Mm. I want more community. Um, wow. And, and yeah, so I can't remember exactly how we got on that topic. But. <laughs> well, I wanted to explore yeah. a little bit about the gift economy, which we've kind right. of touched, but we actually are up on a break, so... Maybe yeah. we should just go and then we, we can come back and, and have a lot more time for that. But yeah. I want to just say, too, that you were saying about the next financial collapse. And I often think about the things that I count on for my very survival. And if I don't have money or, let's say, there's some kind of a breakdown where food's not available in the grocery store, uh, I want to live in a community that either where I can grow my own food or I'm able to give someone something where they might share their food with me or, you know, that whole kind of thing that the things that or cooking or um, all the things that we used to do and maybe love to do, uh, but we're losing touch with maybe the things that we're going to need to survive at some point. Yeah, that could happen. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. oh, sorry. Uh, um, money's not a very good insurance policy, but we need to take our break. I'll, we'll yes. So yeah. we'll have a lot of time when we come back. So anyway, my guest today is Charles Eisenstein. Please visit his website, charleseisenstein.net. Check out his books, his blog, great writing on there. Lots of um, wonderful entries about all kinds of things related to money and culture and, and showing up with our gifts. And um, we'll be back in a few minutes. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rudd. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here, and I'm with my guest, Charles Eisenstein. We're talking about sacred economics and before the break, we were talking about the current money system and how it creates scarcity and it, it creates a system where people may become isolated. And really, what we find when we ask people is they crave community. And there's an, a saying, I think there were this research uh, about people on their deathbed and what did they, what was their greatest regret? And nobody ever said, I wish I'd worked more. Most people wish they had connected more with people. And so I think it's a deep craving that we have, but our system is really not designed to support that. So Charles, right before the break, we were, we were talking a little bit about the gift economy and, um, and ways that we see that working. So I'd love to explore that more and also maybe how businesses could prepare for a future that might make them more secure as our economy changes. Yeah. So you mentioned like the deathbed realization, you know. Mm. Um, One thing that is absolutely undeniable is on the deathbed, you realize you can't take it with you. Ah. You None of the things that you've accumulated can you take with you. Yeah. Um, what, what you can kind of take with you or what outlives you, what I'm, I imagine what would give me satisfaction and joy in that moment would be the things that I've created in the world, the things that I've given out. Uh, because those are out there. They don't depend on me anymore. You know, mm. I've given them already. Uh, and I think that that is a kind of security uh, it's something that's that nothing can take away from me you know because I've already given it mm. um, and I think the same thing kind of holds you know if we do face some severe social crisis or economic crisis which I mean in 2008 it looked for a moment like the whole money system could unravel yeah you know, this happens in history sometimes where your bank account becomes nothing but some numbers <laughs> in a computer you know, your, your ATM card doesn't work anymore. Mm. Like, you know, that happens sometimes. Um, and if that does happen, then if, if we're going through a transition in worlds, it's kind of like a death, you know, then mm-hmm. where does your security come from? It comes from your community. It comes from the things that you have given to others, and now they want to take care of you, too, and they want to help you, too. So in a way, um, a gift is a kind of an investment, because it creates gratitude. And that's, that was the uh, a weave, the weave of community. Um, you know, I've, we've all been giving each other things, therefore we all owe each other. We're kind of all in this together. A, a gift creates a bond, mm-hmm. unlike a purchase. You know, if I buy 
uh, a chair from you, <laughs> then we're done. You know, you've got the money, I've got the chair. But if you give me a chair, now I want to give something to you too, mm. you know, and, and you'll feel free to ask me a favor. So we have a bond created. And I think that, that you know, when, if and when we have some kind of crisis and things fall apart, it'll be these bonds that, that get us through. Now, I think, um, you know, this seems like, like kind of dissociated from uh, what uh, a business person might be thinking about right now. Um, but I think that this idea of the gift could also be a guideline uh, in a very, very practical way for businesses too. Mm. Because what, you know, our society is going to go through a transition. I mean, we have to become uh, an ecological species. We can't keep taking more and more and destroying more and more on this beautiful, finite planet. Uh, so if you want to prepare for the future, either in your career or, uh, you know, as a business person, even in a corporation, you might as well begin to align yourself with this future ahead of schedule. <laughs> uh, and because what's going to be uh, financially viable and well-rewarded in the future will be those things that are consistent with um, an ecological society. Today, like I said at the beginning, you know, cutting down the forest is more profitable than preserving it. Mm. But that cannot possibly be true forever into the future. Someday the things that will be the most valuable will be the things that, you know, keep forests healthy, the things that uh, remediate waste, uh, the things that uh, allow zero-waste manufacturing, uh, the things that, that um, you know, contribute to the health of the atmosphere, to the health of the soil, and so on. Um, it's not that ecological behavior comes at a sacrifice to financial well-being. Today it does, mm -hmm. but it won't in the future. And, and I think a really forward-looking business, even if you didn't care about the planet, you know, I think a forward-looking business would, would really turn significant attention toward becoming sustainable, toward, toward becoming an agent of the healing of this planet. So that makes sense. I guess the first question I would have is if I were an entrepreneur with a great idea, how do we finance getting something like that started? Is there, or, or do you have any thoughts about that? Because that seems like you were saying that yeah. right now banks or people with money have an incentive to hang on to it and, and there's not much guidance through Washington to get money out to people. But this would actually perhaps even go against some other f ways that money's being made right now. So do you have any thoughts yeah. about that? Yeah, you have to find uh, visionary funders mm. uh, with a long view who, are, um, who aren't primarily doing it for the money. Um, sure, they would like to get a return, but they are coming into the spirit of the gift themselves mm. and seeing their money as a way, a creative tool, uh, like an artist's brush, 
to to create something that is meaningful to them and beautiful to them and, and healing for the planet. Um, using money as an implement of service, and it's not easy. You know, I have a lot of respect for people who are skilled at creating beautiful things with money. Uh, it's its own it's its own path. You know, it's it's it's. Uh, I don't think it's any easier to use money well than it is to use any other gift that we might have well. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you have to find people who who aren't who aren't going to say, okay, you know, what's the immediate calculable return on investment here? Um, yeah. So that sounds like you might find, I'm thinking of two kinds of people, there may be more, but one would be that example I gave of the young entrepreneur that had hundreds of millions of dollars and realized he was miserable and gave it all away and went to a third world country to, do some, to really yeah. give a gift. Um, and the other one might be, someone in their later years who has <laughs> re-examined their life and, and now feels like on their deathbed they don't want to have regrets about mm-hmm. all the stuff they can't take with them and maybe feeling like they've done something. I mean, I think that's really what I hang on to to give me hope is that people, I believe, intrinsically want to help other people and want other people to be happy even though our culture doesn't really feed us to do that. Um, I think that's our natural state, and as we, one of the things I see in business and sort of the themes of my show is that even in business, complexity is making us have to work together more. So, back in the industrial age, many people could just be moved around, the skill level wasn't very high for jobs, Mm -hmm. and you could get rid of somebody and replace them easily, but now there's such a high skill level that not only are do they have to treat people better to keep them as a good investment? But I can no longer do what somebody else does, so I have to work with them. And mm-hmm. in a way, it, it helps people learn how to be in community and business and maybe then even take that home to their, to their community, hopefully. Um, yeah, that's an interesting, interesting observation. Yeah. Um, well, so uh, we've talked... A little bit about well, you mentioned the tipping point. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I, I, I know we've talked about financial security being an illusion. Um, what do you? So, what do you mean by a tipping point? Um, I mean, I'm familiar with the term. I don't use it myself a whole lot. Okay. Um, I, I wanted to add in one more thing from the previous topic. You know, yeah, please. About how do you find the funding for it? I mean, there's this is a big movement now. You know, impact investing, for example. Okay. Um, and, and B Corps. I don't know if you've heard about them or talked about them on your show. I, ben- I've heard Benef- of them. They're in Pennsylvania. They're right near me where I used to live. Yeah. Yeah. Benefit corporations are called, you know, where it's written into the corporate charter that, you know, uh, um, um, some kind of social purpose. Uh, social enterprise is another concept. So this is not, you know, some wild, radical idea. You know, it's really coming into our consciousness now. Uh, and as for a tipping point, you know, I think that um, all of these things are going to remain, quote, alternative or marginal uh, for a while. Um, mm-hmm. As long as the kind of money system we have today still dominates, um, these will be kind of um, on the periphery. And the main thrust of the economy will remain um, 
you know, squeezing as much growth as possible out of this tired planet. Mm. Uh, but when the core falls apart, then all of these things that have been developing in the margins have the opportunity to become the new normal. Mm. So, uh, so, yeah, so it's important to develop them and to develop the ways of thinking that surround these, you know, new ideas of impact investing and social enterprise and benefit corporations and things like that. Uh, not because their existence by themselves will change the system, uh, but because they have the possibility of becoming the system. And I think as more and more people, and I've seen this, and, I've, and some of my other guests have shared that the younger generations, the millennials, the Gen Yers, care more about social responsibility. So they, as a group, might start to patronize more of these companies that have social responsibility and, and care about the environment. And, and as then they grow, uh, maybe that's what we could think of as sort of a tipping point that that'll become yeah. the norm. I mean, that's the only way I could see it happening without some sort of crisis, which would be nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's definitely a, a business niche uh, to serve people who willingly pay more for something because it's socially and environmentally responsible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and that could make kind of a market argument about why that just makes the normal stuff even cheaper uh, mm-hmm. And more consumed, uh, and you know, a lot of people are just desperate to survive. You know, yeah, it, it, and and that is only going to intensify um, without serious economic reform. So, mm. you know, I don't think that that green consumerism is going to save the world, but I <laughs> I do think that it's important anyway, um, mm. as kind of creating a template for the future. Oh, that's great. Well, so we have about. A minute left. Any final thoughts or um, things that you'd like my listeners to know? Mm, I think, you know, people sometimes ask, okay, so what do I do now? You know, how do I act on all of this stuff? And I think that, that that question has a unique answer for everybody. And I'm not here to tell you, you know, you should do this, you should do that. Um, but I think that uh, by really recognizing uh, the, the nature in ourselves of, of being here to give, mm-hmm. of being here for a magnificent purpose, you know, that, that, yeah, I have these gifts and I desperately desire to use them in a way that benefits what I care about in this world. Like, mm. just acknowledging that, yes, that is who I am. Yes, that is what I serve. Um, once once we really are grounded in that, then um, our choices begin to change. And the answer to that question, what do I do about it, becomes obvious or clearer in its, in its unique personal manifestation for you. Mm, that's beautiful. Well, we are out of time. Charles, thank you so much for being my guest today, and I hope you'll come back and visit us again. Yeah, thanks, Olivia. I, I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. So next week, my guest will be Barry Johnson, and we'll be discussing polarities, how to identify them, and how to work with them to your benefit. So be sure to tune in 
And for a full description of this and other upcoming shows, as well as access to all past shows and guest bios, please visit www.quantumbusinessinsights.com. I'm your host, Olivia Parrood, saying thank you for tuning into Quantum Business Insights and have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week. We'll be right back.